Well, uh, this slide before we begin um, is a slide for me to remember to ask you to take the name tags out of your update and to write your name on the name tags and put them on if you haven't already. Now, let me tell you the reason why for this. Back in, uh, back in uh, November of last year, I was in Seattle, and I remember being, praying about Grace Community Church. I remember praying about grace, and the Lord just impressed upon my heart that 2017, 2018 is going to be the year of the newcomer. And, um, and so we've been working along those lines over the past six, seven, eight months, nine months, I guess. But I realized a couple of weeks ago that um, as an introvert, and I'm, I'm, I'm an introvert, sometimes people don't recognize that in me, some of you do, but... I, I have to work at hospitality. I have to work at hospitality. Just like somebody who doesn't enjoy running has to work at running a 5K or an 8K or whatever. I've got to really work at hospitality. And so the other, other several weeks ago, I was thinking, you know what, I'm, at the end of the service, I'm going to go to one of the three doors out there. I'm just going to shake people's hands on the way out. And I realized last week as I was doing that, I should know your name, but I don't know it. And, and I'm, I, I tend to be also not, not only somewhat introverted, but also somewhat perfectionistic. So I don't like it if I don't know somebody's name. And so if you wear your name tag, I will get to know your name and hopefully know your name a lot better than I, than, than I do now. So I would really appreciate it. We're going we're gonna to do this for the balance of the year, okay? So... If, if you could just kind of get in the habit of taking the name tag out, writing your name on it, and putting on. And it's, it is for me, in part, because I really do want to know your name, but it's also for the rest of us. Because, you know, uh, there's a study that was done that, that, that showed that if I shake your hand and I call you by name, even though I don't know you, and I see the name tag on, on, your, on your chest, you feel better because your name was, was called. And you know that the only reason why they said it is the name tags on your chest. But you just feel better. So we're going we're gonna to do this for the balance of the year, maybe beyond. But, um, and then I'm going to try to be at the back. If you're thinking, why is he at the back of the auditorium shaking everybody's hand? I want to get to know you better. And so that's, that's the reason why. Okay, so we're in this series called Kingdom Culture. And it's a, it's a series about experiencing... Um, the transforming love of God, and then extending that out toward others. And over the past several weeks, we've talked about kingdom culture being a culture of love from Matthew chapter 1, the genealogy. We talked about kingdom culture being a culture of honor from the story about the transfiguration. And this morning, we want to talk about kingdom culture being a kingdom a culture where God breaks into the ordinary, breaks into your ordinary day, breaks into your ordinary experience. So I want to start off with a, with a story. Uh, when we were first uh, new parents, we would take our daughter to a park in Dallas called Titsi Park. We didn't have a lot of money back then, and entertainment was hanging out with her daughter, Sarah. And I have this very distinct me memory of an event that took place while we were at Titsi Park one day. Uh, Cindy and I were sitting on the bench, Sarah was playing, and a big black lab bounded into the park and made a beeline toward my daughter, Sarah, who's three or four years old. Sarah was not used to big, big 
you know, crazy dogs like labs are. And I saw this look of horror come on Sarah's face. She races up toward me, and her she, arms are pumping, you know, and her blonde hair is just being driven by the wind, you know, little beads of sweat are forming on her face. She's running toward me with all her might. I see this. I stand up. She runs into my arms, and she says, Daddy, I'm scared. Well, the dog immediately lost interest, like, right? Because what fun is there? The person's not running anymore. So the dog goes off to somebody else. Sarah looks at me. She wiggles, gets down, and goes back in place. That's just a random event, right? No big deal. Happens a thousand, ten thousand times in a childhood. Little, ordinary, random events. Except for me, it was not just ordinary because the next day, for some reason, I was in my graduate school class and I wrote out a poem about what had happened in the park. I have read and reread and reread that poem thousands of times since I wrote it. My daughter now, 37 years old, has read that poem and asked me about the circumstances behind that poem. Just a random little event. But the reason why it was so significant to me was I, I realized that I am Sarah's, in that moment, I was Sarah's island of safety. I was her safe harbor. I was her home base. I was, I was her world of protection in that moment. And in that moment, she encountered my fatherly presence in a way that injected confidence. So here's my conviction about spiritual growth. My conviction is God wants you to encounter Him in the ordinary. In the ordinary. Uh, he wants you to encounter His presence in the ordinary, His power in the ordinary, His kindness, His grace, His goodness in the ordinary affairs of life. As we all know, life is not always extraordinary. It's not always Six Flags and Disney vacations and Alaskan cruises. It's not always rock concerts and Broadway shows. It's not always skiing in Aspen and golfing in Pebble Beach and going fly fishing in Belize. Most of life is just plain ordinary. And the amazing thing about God is that God loves to take that ordinary, and he loves to sanctify it with his presence. He loves to break into your ordinary existence with the goodness of his presence. In fact, I'd say God is waiting for you to notice that he is trying to encounter you in the midst of the ordinary. Now, I know that sounds kind of vague, so I want to flesh it out this morning with two stories about encountering God in the ordinary, and both of these stories take place in the time of the judges, and both of these stories take place at a particular location during the time of the judges, a place called the threshing floor. It's a place called the threshing floor, and we're going to see this from Judges chapter 6 and Ruth chapter 3 and 4. Now, most of you don't know what a threshing floor is. It's a little hard to pronounce. So let me begin with a little bit of background about threshing floors. In the ancient world, uh, planters would plant their seed in the proper season, and they would work the soil, they would harvest their seed, 
And then came the hard work of separating the seed from the kernels, the husks that were around the seed. To do this, what you would do is you would place your harvest in that threshing floor that you see on the screens, and maybe you would get animals to stomp on it. Sometimes you would take a threshing sled and you would drag the sled over, over the, the seed. The, the sled is embedded with little stones. And uh, sometimes you take horses and you would, you would stomp on the seed with your horses, or if you were poor, you would stomp on it yourself. And then when you were done separating the seed from the, from the kernel, you would throw the seed, the, the, the resulting mass, up in the air, and the wind would drive the chaff away, and the kernels that you wanted for food would fall back to the threshing floor like little pebbles. So now you've separated your seed and you're left with a stack of grain. Now this is a reality check because after you, after you had all of your seed separated, that pile in the center of the threshing floor was what you would live on for the rest of the year and what you would use for planting for the following year. As you can imagine, threshing floors became quite valuable places. This is the most valuable piece of real estate in Jerusalem in the time of David. It is the threshing floor of Arauna, the Jebusite. It is at a very high place, and you know this place. This place is now the most valuable piece of real estate in the Middle East. It is the Temple Mount, a place hotly contested by Christians, Jews, and Muslims. It was the threshing floor of Arauna, the Jebusite, and a very, very valuable piece of real estate in the first century. Now, here the amazing thing, here's the amazing thing about threshing floors in the Bible. God loves to reveal himself at the threshing floor. Now, why would he do that? Why would he do that? Why would he reveal himself on threshing floors? Because it's the place where you realized my provision for life comes from God. It's an ordinary place. It's a place of hard work. It's a, it's a normal place. It's an ordinary part of the season of life. But it's a place where you realize, wait, God is the one responsible for my, my livelihood. And therefore, God would tend to break through and break in at the place of the threshing floor. It's a little bit like God breaking into your life in the produce section at Food Pyramid. Or it would be like God breaking into your life in the lumber section of Lowe's as you're trying to repair a bathroom. It's God breaking into your ordinary life. Threshing floors are the place where God would break through and communicate to his people. Now, with that in mind, let me tell you the first story. The first story is a story about this man named Gideon. So uh, for seven years, the nation of Midian had ravaged the land of Israel, and the Midianites would come to this place called the Jezreel Valley with their thousands upon thousands of animals, and the Midianites would bring their cattle into the Jezreel Valley, and the cattle would just eat and munch all of the crops that Israel had planted. And so the people of Israel were realizing, we're, we're losing our sustenance both for this year and for next year because the Midianites are gobbling up all of our stuff. 
the Midianites loved good old Oklahoma barbecues as well because the Midianites would gobble up the animals that the Israelites had, leaving the Israelites to be completely destitute. So the Israelites, being terrified of the Midianites, would go up to the caves and the thickets and the holes in the ground, and they would camp where they could not be seen. So then God responds. They're crying out to God for help. God responds to a man named Gideon, and guess where he appears to Gideon? On a threshing floor, except it's not an ordinary threshing floor. This threshing floor is actually at the bottom of a wine press. Now, look at that wine press up in the, up in the scenes. You know, the, the, the reason why you had threshing floors in high places is because the wind would blow the chaff away. But Gideon is in the lowest possible place because he doesn't want the Midianites to see that he's got some grain to thresh out. If you were to see Gideon on that day, you would have seen a man who was fearful, fretful, anxious, and very small. And yet, God breaks into his life. He says, the Lord is with you, mighty warrior. I can just imagine Gideon going, me? <laughs> Seriously? I am not a mighty warrior. And Gideon um, is like, well, maybe, maybe uh, you're addressing somebody else. Well, Gideon um, begins to argue with God. Now, let me tell you something. If God showed up in my ordinary existence, I, I hope I would not argue. Gideon argues. Gideon says, God, if you're with us, why are, you so, why, why are so many bad things happening in our life? Why all this heartache and suffering? Why aren't you doing miracles anymore? Gideon is not curious about God's presence. He's not anxious to know about why he showed up now. None of that. He's arguing with God. And then Gideon doubts himself. He says, he says what do you mean brave warrior? My family is the least in our tribe. I'm the youngest of our family, and I've done nothing to protect them from the Midianites. That's a paraphrase, but that's essentially the idea that he's saying. God is not dissuaded by this. God says, Gideon, I'm calling you as a judge to deliver Israel. Gideon is still assailed with doubts and fears, so Gideon, Gideon proposes this test. All right, God, look, look if, if, if you really want me to do this, he said, Here, here's a fleece, and, and um, let this fleece be totally drenched tomorrow with dew and everything around it be dry. Okay, that happened. And Gideon says the next day, okay, 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 th th that happened. L let's reverse it. That was very cool. Let the surrounding ground be wet, but let the fleece be dry. That happens. Gideon's still really nervous, so, so God says, okay, tonight I want you and your servant to sneak down into the Midianite camp, and you're going to overhear a dream, and this dream is going to encourage you. So they go out into the Midianite camp, dressing up, and in the camp, one Midianite randomly says to his friend, I had this dream. In the dream, a barley loaf tumbled down into the camp, and it overturned the tents of Midian. And the other guy says, Gideon's going to defeat us. He's going to win the war. Oh, my gosh. And so Gideon's convinced. He assembles 32,000 men. 32,000 men. It's a lot of people. God pairs it down to 300. And they attack the Midianites essentially with torches and with horns. And the Midianites 
totally freak out. Here's an artistic depiction of it by Nicholas Poussin. They totally freak out. The Midianites begin to fight against themselves. And there's this incredible victory. Now, you'd expect then that Gideon's life would change, right? He would be passionately God-confident, and he would pursue God with all his heart, right? Wrong. Wrong. Gideon goes from being fearful and depressed to arrogant and controlling, and he incredibly seems to take credit for this whole thing to himself. So Gideon gathers up the spoils of war, you know, the gold and the silver and all that. He creates a worship implement called an ephod, and Israel begins to worship the ephod as opposed to the true God. Here's the problem, and I think Gideon's story is a story that we can all relate to. When God shows up in the ordinary affairs of life, we got two choices. We can stay stuck and anxiety, fear, or arrogance, or we can allow ourselves to be persuaded by God. And Gideon allowed himself to be driven back into double-mindedness. Here, God shows up. God shows up. What a privilege. God shows up. And rather than receiving that as a benefit, Gideon instead becomes arrogant and double-minded. That's the bad example. God shows up. You don't recognize the great opportunity you have and you stay stuck in arrogance. Now, now we have the, the, the second story. The second story is the story of Ruth. God also shows up for Ruth on a threshing floor. Ruth's story also takes place in the book of Judges. So here's this Israelite family who moved to the region of Moab to find food. It's a mom and a dad and two sons. Sons come of age, they fall in love with Moabite women, they get married, and tragedy strikes. All three of the men in the family die. So now there are these three widows in Moab, and what are they going to do? Well, Naomi, the, the mother-in-law, says, I'm going back to my home city of Bethlehem in Israel. And the two, the two, her two daughters-in-law have a choice. One daughter-in-law says, I'm staying here. Other daughter-in-law says, I'm going with you. I am aligning with the people of God I'm going with you back to Bethlehem. Of course, that was Ruth. When they arrive, they're terribly impoverished. It's harvest time, so Ruth goes throughout the neighborhood. She finds a person who's willing to let her glean and, and reap the grain in the fields. And by chance, it's the field of Boaz. And then things get very interesting because it would appear there's a little bit of chemistry between Boaz, who's older, and Ruth, who is younger. Boaz goes out of his way to take care of Ruth. Boaz, day after day, instructs her to come back to my fields. He says to his co-workers, now you protect her, don't harm her, don't speak poorly of, of her. Ruth, you come and dine with us. Eat some of our, of our grain. So Naomi, the mother-in-law, has an idea. And her idea is, Ruth, do you know that Boaz is one of our close relatives? And we can invoke the law of the close relatives, and maybe Boaz could be your husband. And the law of the nearest relative worked like this. If your husband died, the nearest male relative could marry you, and the first child of that union would legally be the child of your deceased husband. It was called the law 
of leveret marriage. Naomi's thinking, we can invoke this law, and I'll get you a husband. So Naomi says, here's the game plan. The game plan is tonight I'm going to prepare a bath for you. I'm going to put in some essential oils. I'm going to prepare your nicest dress and your nicest perfume, and you're going to go to the final party at the threshing floor, and once there, you're going to do something incredibly risky. Ruth, are you in? Ruth is in for doing something incredibly risky. The sun sets, and the party at the threshing floor begins. Now, the Bible does not talk about the party, but we know from culture that all of these last events at the threshing floor, there was a big celebration. They would, they would have a feast, and there would be wine, and there would be, there would be just a, a wonderful meal, and then all the people would sleep on the threshing floor to guard the grain because, you know, the grain could be stolen by, by enemies. And uh, at the right time, Ruth sneaks into the party, the lights go out, everybody drifts off to sleep, and Ruth tiptoes over to the place where Boaz has his little sleeping mat. And uh, she gently removes his blanket, and she cuddles up next to Boaz. Boaz wakes up with a start, like, what? Who are you? And he realizes it's his beautiful young worker named Ruth. And Ruth is ready with her lines. <laughs> I think she's practiced these lines. And she says, quote, Boaz, please spread your covering over me, for you are my close relative. Now, I will tell you, that one line packed a punch in terms of what it communicated. Because Boaz heard that and his heart leapt with hope and joy. Ruth's words are a combination of legal language and loving tenderness. And what she essentially said, said was this, will you, will you please entertain a marriage proposal from me? You are my closest relative. You are legally free to marry me and received the land of my husband's father. Boaz's heart leapt when he heard that. Wow. Now, let me put the, push the pause button on the story and, and just reflect on this for a moment. God is breaking in at the threshing floor. And he's breaking into five lives, five lives. Now, before I tell you what the five lives are, let, let, let's, let's just take, take a look at this. Here's what it looked like. Does that look like golfing at Pebble Beach to you? Does that look like skiing in Aspen to you? It's ordinary. Uh, here's the threshing floor when they're doling out the grain. Does that, does that look like a Disney vacation to you? No. Just ordinary. Just ordinary life, ordinary common life. And there's the threshing floor at dusk, and the people are sleeping on that threshing floor guarding the grain. Does that look like fly fishing or camping in the Adirondacks Mountains? It's just ordinary life. And God is, is breaking through in the presence of the ordinary. Number one, he's breaking through into Boaz's life. Boaz is an older man with no wife. He's clearly attracted to Ruth. He probably thought, I've got no chance with her. She's young. I'm old. What would she see in me? 
God is breaking into Ruth's life. She's a younger widow with no prospects for marriage, no prospects for any financial help, no family other than Naomi, and she, but, but she genuinely treasures what is important to God. God is breaking into Boaz's life and Ruth's life on the threshing floor. God is also breaking into Naomi's life. She's not on the threshing floor. She's back at home, but God is breaking into her life as well because this is going to change her life if they get married. God is breaking into Israel's life big time because Israel is in such a bad place right now. God is breaking into Israel's life to bring a king several generations later, King David. Ruth and Boaz will become the great-grandfather and the great-grandmother of King David. And God is breaking into your life at this threshing floor. Now, here's why, well, here's why I say that. I say that because Ruth is part of the genealogy of Jesus. We saw that in the first week of this series. Ruth is part of the genealogy of Jesus. At that threshing floor, God broke into your life because a woman of integrity chose to follow the law and propose a solution to her problem. Gideon didn't do that. Gideon had this incredible opportunity, incredible opportunity, and Gideon said, it's about me. It's about me. And his arrogance came out after that opportunity. No, not for Ruth. Ruth says, it's, it's all about you, Lord. It's all about you. I'm going to steward this opportunity as an opportunity to follow you. So, what's Boaz going to do? Is he, is he going to steward this inbreaking of God's kingdom presence? Yep. He seizes the opportunity. He marries Ruth. They have a child. So, here's the genealogy. Now, just remember this thing about genealogies. I said this in week one, you know, genealogies are a little bit, if you want to find out the highlights of a baseball player, you go to YouTube. In the ancient world, you want to find out the highlights of a life, you went to their genealogy. Now, these are the generations of Perez. Perez fathered Hezron. Hezron fathered Ram. Ram fathered Aminadab. Aminadab fathered Nashon. Nashon fathered Salmon. Salmon fathered Boaz. Boaz fathered Obed. Obed fathered Jesse, and Jesse fathered David. And David was the king of Israel and the ancestor of Jesus. God broke through on the threshing floor. And the ultimate blessing of this genealogy is, is Jesus in the gospel of Matthew. God loves to break through in the ordinary and do things that transform time and eternity. Okay, so what's, uh, what's the main idea? main idea of this story is that God loves to break into our ordinary lives with His kingdom presence and His kingdom power. He loves to break in. So let's, let's think about how He does this. Here's the threshing floor. The threshing floor represents three things. Number one, it is a place of vulnerability. Enemies could steal your grain, fire could destroy your grain, bugs could corrode your grain, and when people finished their harvests, they slept next to the grain wanting to protect it. The threshing floor represents a place of vulnerability. The threshing floor also represents a place of reality. Because when you see your pile of grain, you say, okay, 
That is my reality for the coming year. I eat half, I plant half, but this is my reality. It's a place of reality. The threshing floor also is a place of gratitude because with the grain safely gathered and stored, you now have a future. And the threshing floor was a place of thanksgiving, thanksgiving to God for what happens in the next season. So, I want to ask you, what is the 2017 equivalent of the threshing floor? Well, let me propose four things. The equivalent today, number one, is your job. It's your job. And why is it your job? It's the place of provision. It's also a place that probably to most of us seems very ordinary. Um, you work Monday through Friday. Maybe you work nine to, nine, nine to five. And uh, if you poll people about how, whether they like or don't like their job, many people go, eh, it's okay. Pays the bills. Um, Gallup, um, who does so much research on job satisfaction in the U.S., says by far the majority of people in our country don't like their jobs. They do not feel a strong sense of engagement with the vision of the company. They don't feel their skills are being utilized. They don't sense that their best strengths are being used well in the company. And then add to that problem the problem that Josh brought up several weeks ago, which is the problem of incivility that ripples throughout our society. One of the things that Gallup also says is that work, workplace incivility has skyrocketed. In fact, you know, when Josh, I, I love studies. I love reading studies. So when Josh cited his study, I went out to search for other ones to see what people are saying. And I'm telling you, there's so much being discussed now about workplace incivility. It's, it's amazing. And what is workplace incivility, really, when it comes right down to it? Is, it is the exact opposite of the culture of honor we talked about last week. It's not uncommon for people in the midst of a painful job or maybe a frustrating job or mediocre job to cry out to God and say, God, God, help me. Um, our marriage can be like a, a threshing floor. Our marriage, our family, our friendships, um, marriages sometimes can seem very ordinary, like they're very daily, like you wake up with the same person, you talk to the same person over the phone during the day, you go to sleep with the same person. Marriages can seem very, very ordinary. And all of us loved, would love to go into marriage thinking, oh, this person's going to satisfy all of my needs, they're going to make me feel self-actualized. They'll do so much work to make me feel awesome and not require all that much work from me. Is that how marriage works? No, I don't think so. I don't think so. Marriage, marriages are very ordinary and they expose you to you and what's inside you. And many times people cry out in their pain for a better marriage and God breaks through in that ordinary place to bring new hope. Um, the body of Christ is the same way. The body of Christ sometimes feels very ordinary. You know, it's ordinary in the sense that, you know, I, I, see, I see some of the same people in my small group all the time. I hear some of the same concepts. Ordinary. Ordinary. That's why so many churches will go to smoke machines on the stage 
I don't have anything against smoke machines necessarily, but, but it's, it's how can we take the extraordinary and make every week more extraordinary than the way that it was before? And it, it, it may be like a dependence upon that as opposed to dependence upon the power of the Spirit. God loves to break through into the body of Christ into local churches to reveal His kingdom presence and power. The main way God breaks through is through His Word, through His Word. I, I talk to so many people who have told me, you know, I, I opened up the Word, I read a chapter, and God impressed upon me one verse, and that one verse was a concept that I fellowshiped with through the rest of it. It was like God poured out the supernatural sense of His presence through that one verse as I took that verse through my day. So, let's go back to the main idea of these two stories. God loves to break into our ordinary life with a fresh revelation of His presence and power. What He does, He wants us to be curious, open, receptive to what He's doing in that very moment. Now, in the brief time we have left, I want to give you five takeaways. Uh, I say four there. It's, I, I added one this morning. First takeaway, pray, pray for God's kingdom presence to break through. Here's the part of the Lord's Prayer. Our Father who art in heaven, actually the Greek word is plural, heavens, plural, meaning that uh, God is not just somewhere west of the Andromeda galaxy and south of the Sombrero galaxy, way, 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 way out there, but not here. Our Father in the heavens means God is immediately near you like Wi-Fi signals are near you, like air is near you, like angels are near you. God's kingdom presence is always near you. Our Father, who is very near, that's what that means. Hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. We're talking about His kingdom like a zillion years from now? Well, it is coming for sure, no doubt about that. But in the Lord's Prayer, He's saying, Lord, let your kingdom come now, today, in my life. Let your kingdom break through in this situation, in my marriage, in this project that's not going well, in this Excel spreadsheet where I'm off by five cents. Let your kingdom power and presence break through here. As I'm changing my child's diapers, as I'm feeding them out of the Gerber bottle, may your kingdom come here. That's the thrust of that prayer. Lord, let, let a little bit of your kingdom presence be manifested in my ordinary life. So pray that God's kingdom presence would break into your job, break into your marriage, break into our church, and break into all the ordinary areas of life. And then be observant when it happens. So first application is pray that God's breakthrough would take place. That's the Lord's prayer. That's what we're supposed to be praying daily. Second breakthrough, have the eyes to see when His kingdom is breaking through. So, i got to tell you about a really cool story that happened three weeks ago. I'm in Cuba for two reasons. Number one, I, wanna, I want to help Mosaic Community Church of Seattle. I want to facilitate the connection of our partners with, with them. we got great partners. They want to work in Cuba. I wanted to facilitate that relationship. And then secondly, we got another five-year chunk of time where I want to I really excel as a church with our partners in Cuba. So I went down there for that reason. My son and daughter-in-law were there. 
And through a random set of circumstances, on the last day, I was paired up with my son and daughter-in-law and our partner, Hilberto, to go door-to-door, doing door-to-door evangelism in downtown Havana. And I made a commitment. I said, all right, Lord, when, I, when Caleb said, Dad, we're, we're going to be together. So my first thought was, all right, Lord, I'm, I'm going to not say a word when we go door-to-door. I'm going to listen and let them do it. So I did. And then Caleb said, Dad, Come on, chime in here, man. You're really good at this. So I, I went into sharing the, the gospel with this woman. About 15 minutes later, she prayed to receive Christ. We went to the next house, and Caleb started in on, and Liz started in on sharing the gospel. And Caleb says, my dad's got a really good story about that. So I said a few things. The third time, Caleb said, my dad's got a really good story about that. I started saying some things. I said, actually, Caleb, Caleb's got a really good story about that. We're going back interactively. And we got to the last house, and there's my son in the middle. You can see his, his hand is up like this. <laughs> and he's speaking to about eight or nine non-believers in the courtyard of this kind of rundown place. And my daughter-in-law, who's to, her, to his right, prayed, prayed the prayer that they prayed after her where about, I don't know, about 10 people prayed to receive Christ. I'm standing there, I'm sort of surreptitiously taking this picture with my iPhone, you know, not wanting anybody to see, and realizing, wow, God's kingdom just broke through in, a, in like an incredible way. If you knew where my son was four years ago, like that, that picture represents miracle, miracle. God's kingdom broke through. Now, you have to recognize when things break through. Gideon didn't really recognize what was happening, the significance of it. You got to recognize when God's kingdom is breaking through and thank Him for it. Third, my third is when he does break through, establish milestones. My daughter and son-in-law uh, <clears throat> adopted Judah uh, from Judah Eastland from Uganda, and they have Judah's gotcha date, a, a gotcha celebration. That, that's the date that we got you as our son. And so the gotcha celebration is a milestone. Establish milestones. We establish milestones for all sorts of things in our marriage. Uh, next takeaway, uh, if you want to see God's kingdom break into the ordinary, go, go on a mission trip. That's, what, that's the whole, one of the reasons why I was so excited for, uh, for Whitney and, and for Victoria to, to share. God breaks through on short-term mission trips, whether they're, whether they're here in the States or whether they're someplace else. And then finally, celebrate in the midst of the ordinary. Just celebrate. You know, it, when, when the moment comes and you realize, oh my gosh, God's kingdom just broke through. Identify that and celebrate that in the moment that God's kingdom just broke through. So as, as we close, um, um, and I'm going to have Sean come up here in, in just a moment, but as, as we close, um, I just want you to repeat the first part of the Lord's Prayer, all right? Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Father God, may your kingdom break through 
in all of our lives today, this afternoon, and this week. In Jesus' name, amen.